at the end of the day, like so many businesses, a relationship business, right? Right. Because I remember the one thing that Albritton did say that made some sense to me was with his little Texas draw, he'd say, the idea is to get them to call you. So I always talk with the younger lenders and I say, look, it doesn't matter who you know, it's who knows you. And so you've got to get out there. Obviously, in the current environment, it's hard as hell, right? I mean, it's killing me that I don't get to go to some of these events that we have and we talk and all of a sudden the guy says, ah, sure. oh, did you hear about that deal? And I don't know, I'm interested in that deal. And, you know, starts, you know, the, the molecules start bouncing off each other at these events, whether it's a ULI event or DCBIA event or whatever event it is, NAOP. And all of a sudden you get that interaction that's, you know, person to person has been devoid of the market for the better part of a year. And it's killing me. I mean, and it's killing my guys that, you know, or gals that try to get out there and meet with people. So, you know, the relationships are, that, that are developed are almost like the brand equity that you have in the market. Hi, I'm John Coe and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. For episode 40 of Icons of DC Area Real Estate, I am pleased to introduce Tony Marquez, who is Senior Executive Vice President and President of Commercial Banking at Eagle Bank, perhaps the largest community bank in the Washington, DC region. Tony has a 35-year banking career primarily as a real estate lender. And he's seen many cycles, ups and downs, and we talk a lot considerably about all of his stops along the way. He's been with four banks here in the Washington, D.C. region, Riggs, Chevy Chase Bank, and HSBC, and Eagle, and had different experiences at each one. Tony was born in Cuba, and his parents moved to Miami when he was real little, right after the Castro regime took over in Cuba in the late 50s. And he moved up to Philadelphia when he was a kid and then on to Puerto Rico for his high school years before coming back to the States to go to college at GW here in Washington in foreign service, which is what he thought he would do. Decided to pivot and go into business and banking. Moved to New York where he got a job up there with Chase Manhattan, got his MBA, came back to Washington and then started his banking career here. Tony has a friendly networking manner uh, with impeccable integrity. And it's many reasons why his borrowers respect him and he continue and continually come back to him to seek his services. So without further ado, here is my wide-ranging conversation with Tony Marquez. Welcome, Tony, to the podcast of Icons DC Area Real Estate. Good to see you today. Always good to see you, John. Thank you for uh, inviting me on. I'm in uh, pretty good company, so I, I have to bring my A game. 
So good to see you. You're nice and tan today. The listeners don't see it, but it looks like you've uh, been enjoying yourself down in Florida, and that's great. Yeah, I've been working remotely. Got permission from my handler and uh, came down here for a month and we headed back north. Dodged all the bad weather in February there. That's great. Well, we have a 60-degree day here for the first time this year, so we're looking forward yeah, to that. Yeah, my daughter so. pointed that out to me. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about your role at Eagle Bank and what you're doing now and uh, how it's evolved since you joined there about 10 years ago or so. Yeah, no, thank you. I mean, I'm, I'm uh, sort of uh, very lucky to report that I've got, uh, in the current environment, stewardship for both the real estate lending at the bank and for about the last year, also the CNI, which in banking parlance means commercial and industrial, i.e. all of the non-real estate lending that the bank does except for obviously the residential mortgage area, which is a much more specialized area. We've got a very good lady, Roshanna Lavi, that runs that group for the bank. Now, in terms of how it has evolved, John, which was the second part of your question, you know, when I landed at the bank, I had uh, only stewardship over the real estate uh, lending at the bank. And obviously, uh, uh, a lot of community banks and certainly Eagle Bank with the with uh, Ron's vision for the place at a heavy emphasis on uh, real estate lending as when you're in that one, $2 billion neighborhood in terms of a bank size, in many instances, real estate at the local level is one of the places you can get some outstanding loans, right? And if uh, many of the banks are really a, uh, a margin play, meaning that uh, how you make money at some of these banks is the difference between your cost of funds and what you lend out at, sort of traditional, boring, take deposits, lend them out, then getting loans out the door for any community bank in the communities they serve, right, is really a, a critical element of the business. So I was lucky enough that uh, over time, uh, we uh, started to grow, we were making money, and uh, we were able to grow the real estate loan book, uh, uh, you know, hand-in-hand uh, hand as our legal lending limit went up, we were able to do larger transactions. And uh, over time, we've been uh, in a very good market, as you know. Uh, and so uh, the bank has grown, the real estate book has grown, and uh, it's been a, uh, a fantastic opportunity to have uh, you know, a leadership role for many years now at uh, what I think, because I'm biased, right? Uh, one of the better community banks in town. So Eagle has grown dramatically at it's almost to the point where you're beyond the community bank status, but I assume that you want to keep that kind of hand, that touch with your clients, I assume. That's yeah. Big part Look, of what it, you're doing. It, it is the, we have just under 500 employees. And I think every one of us from senior management down to everyone that works at the bank has that notion that notwithstanding how much the bank has grown over the last 10 years, 11 years, or from its inception, frankly, we need to keep, irrespective of our balance sheet size, that community bank feel. Keep in mind that our lending is really focused maybe, you know, with rare exceptions within 35 to 50 miles of the world headquarters, as I like to call it, uh, of Eagle Bank and, and Bethesda, right? And so, you know, we need to go deeper within the existing market rather than do a deal, you know, like our friends from... Uh, Ozark Bank or whatever, you know, in uh, Minneapolis or something. Uh, although I say that and we've done a bridge to an FHA loan in Minneapolis, so you never know. So, Tony, let's uh, let's go back uh, in the time machine and 
get your uh, story, where you came from and where you grew up and a little bit about your family. Yeah, look, uh, I mean, it is a bit of a sordid past, right? Because I was born in Cuba at a sort of interesting time in the history of that little island. Both my parents, Cubans, uh, and all my grandparents really born in Spain. So it's it's really a, a story of a lot of movement over time, right? And I'll try to be abbreviated in terms of how I sort of cover the geography that I've covered physically over the last, whatever, I'm 62 now. So I've, I've moved around quite a bit. Ironically, the last 31 years I've been in Washington. So, it, it you know, there was a lot of uh, early movement, but then we uh, slowed down a little bit and stayed in one place for a while. And I certainly thank my wife and, and you know, uh, luck, it, if you will. But uh, born in Cuba in 1959, literally like, wow. you know, three weeks after Fidel Castro arrived in Havana on January 6th of 59. Oh my, my middle name, John, and I think you know this, but maybe you don't, is Fidel. So, oh. you know, it's Antonio Fidel. I try not to say that too loud here in Miami because it could get me in trouble, right? Uh, with some <laughs> my dad is a guy that uh, went through eighth grade. He called it a commercial eighth grade education. He had uh, worked, uh, started working, sweeping the warehouse, literally, for a U.S. steel company, uh, worked his way up to being a salesman, et cetera. And then and in uh, Miami? Uh, no, in no, Miami? no. We were still in Cuba, dude. So I haven't even left the island yet. We've already talked for a minute and a half. So he actually got dragged into the revolutionary fervor, if you will. When he was alive, he was a Reagan Republican. So the whole communism thing wasn't really uh, his, his shtick, if you will, as we say. So about 22 months after being in the government, and he, he was not a banker, by the way, although he worked at the National Bank, he was buying chicken wire for agrarian reform, right? The, all of the big land holdings were being redistributed. So he was very much wow. against the prior regime and you know, would have been, I don't know, like some sub-under, sub-under secretary of state for commerce at the National Bank basically just buying chicken wire <laughs> because he knew that from having been working with Armco for so many years. So we sort of voted with our feet. Luckily, my dad's buddies covered for him and we left and landed in Colombia, Barranquilla, Colombia, Cartagena on the coast, sort of a Catholic relief, picked us up at the coast. He had a job with Armco in, in Colombia. We spent a number of years there. And then in 1967, uh, he, was, he had always been a, a fan of the U.S., I mean, he had been invited. He had, was a pretty good little baseball player, so he had been invited to some training camps, you know, in the U.S. But because uh, he was working, he really couldn't afford to come to the states to try out. Good leather, no stick, right? He was he could pick it, but he couldn't really hit that well. So, anyways, we lived in Colombia and South America till 1967. Then my dad got a job offer in the U.S., and we came to the U.S. All legal, by the way. I'm not like one of those rafters or anything. And then. Spent uh, 67 to 75 in the Philadelphia area. That's where I picked oh. up this heavy accent, you know, did that. And then my dad got an offer to go back to the same company at workforce for so many years in Latin America, but specifically in Puerto Rico, running the Caribbean. So I finished high school in Puerto Rico, of all places, and have some very, very good friends there. Oh. Uh, it was one of those lucky things. And you'll hear me go back to the theme of serendipity and luck in many ways. You know, uh, it was an expat package. I ended up at a very good little private school paid by the company, right? And had to get my shit together and um, study a little harder than perhaps I did when I was just playing sports 
uh, in Philadelphia and, uh, and still played sports, but it was a much smaller environment and you couldn't really get away without doing all the work you needed to do. Mm-hmm. Graduated in 77 from, uh, from uh, this really little non-sectarian prep school called St. John's, where many of my friends are still, uh, you know, in Puerto Rico. San Juan? In San Juan, yeah. My parents then went on to live in Latin America and a number of different countries, Venezuela, Ecuador, Peru, uh, you know, as his career continued. But I sort of, I mean, I, I didn't follow them down there. I lived in Washington then while I was going to George Washington University. So that's a quick synopsis of a lot of movement. Uh, at, you know, in other words, if you think about it, I actually went to four high schools because in wow. Philadelphia, you know, it was the junior high model. So it was seven, eight, nine, right? So I went to ninth grade, one place. I went to 10th grade, one place. And then unfortunately, the apartments where we lived, and I'm sort of an apartment kid, right? So having been a renter as opposed to a homeowner, my parents were not homeowners. They burned down. The building that I lived in burned what? down. And we had wow. to move. And so we moved and I ended up at a parochial high school, Archbishop Wood. And then we moved to Puerto Rico. So I literally went to two schools for 10th grade, one for ninth, and then two years in Puerto Rico. <laughs> so so you, didn't really, you didn't really have roots until you were in Puerto Rico to some extent with friends and stuff. Well, you really I, yeah, have, I mean, or did I, you? We did in terms of family in Washington that I had, et cetera. So, you know, look, you it's a little bit, even uh, even seaweed developed some roots somewhere and you stay for a while, right? Uh-huh. So we moved sure. around a lot, but it but it was uh, it was interesting, uh, you know, uh, and certainly uh, we were lucky. How did you get to GW? Why GW from? Uh, you know, it, it's funny. Thank you for asking that because I had, you know, like many first generation immigrant kids, you feel so lucky to be an American. That I felt like I wanted to sort of give back, right, for the great opportunity that I'd had. And I went to GW with every intention of going into the foreign service. I mean, that was like, hey, this, you know, I speak Spanish, whatever. And it wasn't a big stretch, right, because Spanish was spoken in my house. Although I will tell you that, like a lot of immigrant families, my parents would speak to us in Spanish. We'd respond in English. So when I got to Puerto Rico, I was a junior and I literally placed into like seventh grade Spanish. <laughs> so I was in there with all these little punks and these little desks that are seventh graders. And I was a junior. Then obviously, because you've got a good year for it over time in the, for my senior year, I got promoted up to 11th grade Spanish because, you know, you, you were forced to speak it. And that's the only way really to learn a language, but, but it was a uh, classic, right? I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty wild that I placed in the seventh grade Spanish. <laughs> Why the foreign service, out of curiosity? Well, just, I mean, I had, weirdly enough, and I don't have the discipline to have done it, I actually thought for a while about the, the Naval Academy at Annapolis. And, it, you know, it, that takes a, the resident commissioner in Puerto Rico gets some, uh, some, what do you call it, appointments to all of the academies. But then I sort of pulled up short and I said, oh, forget that. That's not for Tony. That probably had to wake up early and all that kind of stuff. So I figured, <laughs> all right, well, another way to do it is maybe to, you know, try, uh, try my hand at uh, international relations and, and try to get into the foreign service. I applied to Georgetown, which obviously has the, the Walsh School of Foreign Service. I had the easiest interview in all of Puerto Rico for my Georgetown, you know, interview because my best friend in high school, his dad was the interviewer for the island and he was a Hoya through and through, right? And he said to me, look, apply. I know you can get into the school, you know, but I don't think you can get into the School of Foreign Service and like a 
typical idiot, brash 18-year-old. I said, well, if they don't want to take me at the School of Foreign Service, then I don't want to go there. So I applied to the School of Foreign Service, didn't have whatever the grades. By the way, Georgetown, I don't know if they still have it. They have this thing called the mid-year sort of grade reporting thing, right? Well, mm-hmm. let me tell you, my senior year, mid-year grades were not exactly stellar. So that didn't really mm-hmm. help my case. By that time, I was already had already been accepted to GW that, you know, at that point had a, a reasonably good and now has a very good Elliott School of Foreign Service. Uh, it was called something different. I guess nobody had given the money to name the school after them. And I, I went to GW with the thought that, well, maybe I'll transfer to Georgetown, right? Once you arrive someplace and you've got all your knuckleheads there, what, why switch? So I just stayed at GW, thankfully, because mm-hmm. that's where I met my wife. That was a good experience there. You enjoyed it? Yeah, it was Being fantastic. I mean, uh, look, I mean, you can you can spend a lot of time playing pickup basketball at the gym and still do pretty well. So it was good. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, did you blend in? I mean, obviously being a uh, – was there, was there a lot of kids that looked like you there? I mean, did you – Well, GW is a pretty international school, but in terms of yep. looking like me, I mean, you know – Look, you can, it, it, I went to uh, school in English for most of my life at, once sure. we left uh, Columbia. And so, and even in Columbia, I was in a, a school that was half the day was in English. And by the way, I always like to remind people that I used to summer in Greenbelt. Literally, my <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, all my clients are talking about Nantucket and the vineyard. And I'm like, well, I summered in Greenbelt, my friend. In the early 60s, while we lived in Columbia, I'd come up to Greenbelt for like two months, live with my grandparents and my mother and my brother. My sister was born in Columbia, wasn't even born then. And literally, it was like Mayberry RFD. I mean, we would just romp around that planned community from after the mm-hmm. uh, after the sure. World War II, right? That was probably yep. part of the inspiration for Rouse to do Columbia, right? Because it was such a well-planned community. I recently right. did a deal. My, my team knows that I have a soft spot. In my heart for Greenbelt, we recently did a deal on some houses that were there when I used to go in really? the early 60s to Greenbelt. They're still there. Those little white ones that are like two over twos sure. that are right there mm-hmm. in the heart of Greenbelt. Uh, so anyways, I, I spent a fair amount of time, three or four summers in a row for about two months in Greenbelt, Maryland, summering in Greenbelt, sleeping on so a full I can see why Washington, yeah, why Washington had an attraction to you then. To some yeah, there's no question. I mean, I got into yeah. Boston College and Holy Cross, and that was just way too cold for me. So, right. uh, and with the mm-hmm. Foreign Service interests, I figured, what the hell? Uh, you know, they do call GW Georgetown waitlist sometimes. My niece <laughs> and my sister-in-law, all of whom went there, get a big yuck out of it. The irony is that GW maybe at one point was the most expensive undergraduate program in the country. Uh, yeah, it, it certainly more wasn't. Than the Ivy Leagues. Yeah, it, it, it certainly wasn't when I was there, thankfully, because I remember my hand, my dad's hand almost shaking when he gave me the check for the first semester <laughs> tuition, room and board. But three years later, I cut him a break. I got a job with GW as an RA, resident assistant. And sure. it was the year that my brother was going up to Boston College. And I called him up and I said, listen, I've got tuition, room and board covered. And he's like in his little broken English, what, what? <laughs> I said, yeah, you know, I've got it covered. I, the RA jobs in those days at GW were incredibly good. So I ended up covering my six years there, undergrad and grad, half of it. And it was timely because I'm sure his hand was shaking right in the check for Boston College for my brother. 
I'll bet. So you decided to stay on to graduate school. Why? What? What? What drove that decision? I mean, at that point, I had gotten promoted from RA to RD, which is resident director. So I had like a staff, and I had a stipend, and so it was like a no-brainer just to stay there and milk the system and get a graduate degree. Why stop the good times? I mean, you know. Uh, and so I, I stayed there. The only thing I did a little different is that instead of, t- I think you had to take like 12 classes or something if you didn't want to write a thesis, and I wanted no part of a thesis, I took, and you had to do three different areas of study or whatever. But what I did is I took the minimum number of classes in international law, international uh, and political theory, and international relations, two, two, and two, and then every other course I took was in international business or business, right? And so I mm-hmm. created sort of a mini-me kind of international MBA for myself without taking any of the accounting or any of the really heavy-duty math stuff because I'm no math wonk. Interesting. So you fit, you got your M- master's and then what? What, what did you want to do after well, that? Well, you know, master's? interestingly, I'll tell you a funny story, or at least I think it's funny. I, my junior year, I took the written test for the Foreign Service, right? Mm-hmm. It was like sure. a it was like a crazy thing, and you had to register for it. And, and this is all like pre-internet for, for those that are listening that are under 30 or whatever, right? And so I go to this thing, and it's, it's almost like the SAT, right? It's four and a half hours, three and a half hours, whatever the hell it is. And so I passed the damn thing, like my junior year, right? And I get this call that the dean wants to see me. And I'm like, oh, shit, what did I do now? So I go over there and I remember the dean, you know, is looking at my transcript or whatever. He goes, well, Mr. Marquez, I see you passed the foreign service exam, the written part, by the way. Let's Mm -hmm. clarify that. And I said, yeah, dean, I got the notice. I'm, you know, I'm pleased. I've got the all day assessment. And he says to me, well, you know, I can see here from your transcript that you're not one of our better students. I said, well, Dean, I suspect some of your better students didn't pass the test, so I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then, of course, I went to the all-day assessment, and I got bounced out of there. That that was a, sort of a harrowing experience. You know, they do interviews, and a two-on-one, and there's an inbox, outbox, and I was absolutely not prepared for any of that. So I got mm-hmm. bounced out and never got really onto the rolls. So that pretty much told me that either uh, – uh, I got into a business uh, mode or or whatever, you know, work up on the hill. But uh, I ended up sort of pivoting to to business, although I did take a job teaching Spanish for a year. And there's some argument at Murray, uh, the private school, whether I was a sure. bas- basketball coach, JV baseball coach that happened to teach Spanish or the other way around. Right. So I did that for a year while I interviewed with banks up in New York and in Pittsburgh at Mellon. What kind of turned you on to banking out of curiosity to start with? Look, it's like everything else. I mean, I go back to luck and serendipity. My uh, my sister-in-law had, she wasn't my sister-in-law then, right? I was dating her sister and uh, they got me some interviews up in New York while I was teaching at Murray. And uh, mm-hmm. I was lucky enough to get selected to work on the retail side at Chase Manhattan Bank, literally like an assistant branch manager in Great Neck at a retail branch in what they called the retail program, development program, some sort of retail training program. The banks don't have those anymore. These training programs are rarely due because they're so expensive and everybody leaves, but they had a retail training program. And so the only thing I said going into, I, I, I didn't know, you don't know anything when you're 25. I mean, you're just trying to figure it out. 
And I said to them, well, if it's a bank, at some point, I'd like to learn how to make loans. And the guy who ran the group said, all right, go to the, finish the retail training program and go be a retail banker for a while. And, and then we'll see if we can get you into the, what they call the Chase credit training program or whatever. And I said, great. Mm -hmm. And so I just sort of did my assistant branch manager thing, you know, winding the vault and close, you know, opening up CDs and letting little old ladies into their safe deposit <laughs> boxes and all this stuff. By the way, I killed it in Great Neck with the little old ladies during the holiday. <laughs> get like these great cards that had like, you know, $50 bills in there from all the little old ladies I was helping out at the branch. It was great. You know, I was making whatever, $22. <laughs> it was good stuff. So uh, you were there for a while and then uh, you went on and get an M you said you already thought you had a master's or a, a kind yeah, of a you know, but customized MBA, but right. you said to get a formal one. What, right. Why did you well, do that? The, you know, we're both in real estate. Low basis is a good thing, right? So working for GW, I got a free master's degree in effect in my last senior year of undergrad. And Chase had a very rich reimbursement program. You need, I mean, I think all you had to do is get a B or better and they pay 100%. So I started even while I was in the branches because the branches you're done pretty much by five thirty or six or whatever, and yeah. you know thought about NYU and all these fancy schools and I was like ah oh, forget it I mean you know Adelphi is right there in Garden City where I live they had you know an MBA program Chase was willing to pay a hundred percent so I started knocking off the classes right uh, to get a graduate degree in finance because that was clearly the gap that I had in my skill set. Because at GW, I took, I mean, I think I took like math for morons undergrad, and then I didn't take any accounting. And so I had really no finance or number crunching capability. Not that I do now, but I had even less then. So I, you know, Chase paid for my MBA. God bless him. And then when I was able to get into the credit program by just sort of talking my way into it as an in-bank candidate with the help of Bill Heffling, who was the market exec for uh, all of Long Island, I took a leave of absence and then sort of finished it up, you know, after I got out of the credit program. Although finally, I ended up having to take two classes at AU because I moved out of Long Island down to DC. And I, you know, ended up having to finish it up at AU, but my formal degree or whatever is from Adelphi, the Panthers. Great. So, you went back into the banking world again, or you were at Chase, and then and then what? Where did you go after you got your well, MBA? Well, you know, uh, but at that point, I was already married at the ripe old age of twenty five. My wife had started at the Heck Company. I had that job in New York, so you know, she we sort of got engaged, and then we got married the year I started at at Chase. She went from Hex to Macy's for like a cup of coffee for six months, and then got pulled back into uh, a division of, of uh, May Company that was in New York. And uh, so we did that for about six years in New York. And then, and then she had always been offered different jobs at Heck Company in Washington. And at some point, you know, you're having Chinese food at 1030 at night in New York and wondering how kids would fit into that equation. And we decided, <laughs> you know, she should take a job down here. And uh, luckily, uh, her brother-in-law, had a, you know, a, a pretty high profile job at Marriott. He wrote a couple of letters to some of his people to Maryland National and the Riggs and a couple of other banks. I did some interviewing and I, I thought I picked the right bank by uh, going to the most important bank in the most important city in the world, the Riggs Bank. Uh, you know, and having been in Washington for school for six years or whatever, 
I figured that was a good place to land. I had offers from NBW and Maryland National. So sure. a buddy that don't go to NBW, they'll be out of business in a year. He was right. What 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 year was this, Tony? I got to DC in 1990. 19, ooh, that's yeah. a tough time. April. To by the way, to be a corporate lender, not to be in real estate. So that's where okay. the when you when we start okay. talking about why real estate again, it's all serendipity, my friend. Interesting, because that was a rough time in Washington. Yeah, yeah. Literally, you know, I got there in April of 90. I did about six months maybe of corporate lending, ironically, with Riggs Bank of Maryland on the corporate side. It's like an AVP lender, whatever, learning the business, right? And so at some point, I remember the guy, and he's still around. Frank Langhammer calls me into his office downtown. He goes, Marquez, you're going to real estate workout now. And he starts laughing. <laughs> you know, because Riggs had, Riggs had developed uh, you know, a lot yep. of uh, lent into a lot of deals. And you know what happened in the early 90s. So literally they just kind of said, Well, this guy can chew and walk gum at the same time. Let's put him over and work out and see what he can do there. And I did three and a half years of bailing water for Joe Albritt at the Riggs. There's a couple of guys that I know pretty well that were in that Riggs workout group. And they came in from one from mortgage banking and the other came in from a development company. And I think I know, I think you know who I'm talking about, but I'll of course. Yeah, mention yeah. their names, uh, David yeah. Cheek and Bruce Lane. Sure. Yeah. Bruce and I uh, were still partners are, you know, at Meridian. Yeah, no, no. I, I, I know those guys very well. And they, and they've, uh, they leveraged that time there really well. And, and Bruce came Did over. Did you work closely with them? Uh, well, not really, because they were on the back end of just sort of disposing of some of the real estate that we'd had to foreclose on. And I was on the front end trying to make sure we didn't have to foreclose on this shit. That way we could you know, keep the loans performing because that bank was teetering. I mean, it was, uh, it was a, a pretty wild three and a half years. But I will tell you, compared to how hard I had worked in the credit program, you know, when I got over there, everyone's like, oh, you're going to be working ridiculous hours. And I remember the first week, and I said to my wife, it was pre-kids, right? I said, you know, Pammy, you work hard. I think I'm going to be working some late hours. And, and late in New York is like you take the 11 o'clock train home. And it, after 8 o'clock, you get meal money and you get, you know, car service to Penn Station to get on the train, right? The first week, I'm looking around. It's 6.30 or 7, and I'm the only one in there. And I'm like, what the hell? This is not working hard. <laughs> you know, so it's all relative, I guess, at the end of the day. But I learned everything plus that I think I know about real estate by fixing some of the problems that I had down there. Wouldn't you say that the workout is the, is the probably the best learning experience in real estate uh, in investing in that era? Well, you have I, to solve I, problems that are just not normal. Yeah. Yes. And right. Yes. And, and the, and is that at the end of the day, in any of these businesses, what you get paid for is for solving problems. I mean, it doesn't matter whether you're in telecommunications exactly. or medicine or exactly. real estate workout, you, you need to uh, just solve the problem, right? And so, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, going into the business with it, the, it was easy in the sense that things were so messed up that anything you did was a value add, right? I mean, I probably would not have lasted in that rigs culture with the fancy, you know, chair molding and all the trimmings of that bank. 
if I wasn't in real estate, but I made it for like five days, like the day after I vested, I left. But I mean, three and a half years of intensive negotiation, intensive asset valuation, intensive discussions with the regulators, you know, literally, John, people telling me, Tony, I need this draw. I got to eat. And you're whatever, 26 years old and dealing with people whose entire livelihood is on the line. Um, Very, very good training in that sense, because it was everything that could go wrong did go wrong. And so if you're going to break the rules, you might as well know what the consequences are of breaking the rules and understand the documents and, you know, where things can go bump in the night. In a cyclical business, it's going to happen. So sure. uh, it was it was great training. And I had some really, really good colleagues there. And we did a hell of a job sort of keeping that bank afloat. Did you meet uh, some clients there or uh, borrowers that you eventually did business with when markets were better? At, at uh, yeah, although they, they, they almost to a person, they remind me that the chairman, Joe Albritton, had decided that Riggs Prime was going to be higher than Wall Street Journal Prime. Mm-hmm. And even 30 years later, I'm still paying for that sin of the bank where people remind me, hey, Tony, remember when Riggs Prime was higher than, than any other uh, Wall Street Journal Prime or anything? And I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, we got through it, my friend. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. there are some people there. And, and obviously, it's a little difficult because some of them, we had some very difficult conversations. But, you know, things change and time passes and uh, real estate is a heavily capital dependent business and they need debt. And, you know, you sort of get over the bad times and understand that that was what we were doing then. And now we're doing something different, but I do still get hit with the rigged prime. (laughs) Any memorable stories at all from those times that that were really, uh, again, to your point, left you with a, you know, Wow. So this is really what banking's all about. I really love this. I mean, it's, it got you really, your juices going, I guess, is what I'm trying to get to, why you wanted to stay in it. Look, I, I think the takeaways from that time for me were that you can disagree without being disagreeable. People uh, will always have the right to defend their interest in any transaction and, you know, I didn't take the stuff personally, right? Because mm-hmm. it, you know, it was uh, exogenous factors uh, and we can, we don't even have to get into why we ended up where we were and that I would call it sort of value and liquidity crisis of the RTC and all of that. But I sort of treated it as uh, you defend your rights. I've got a job to do to defend the bank's rights. Let's see if we can come to accommodation. And if we can, great. And if we can't, then I'm afraid the lawyers will have to be involved. and. You do what you need to do. I'll do what I need to do. And we'll see where we come at the other end. So from that point of view, I think I gained some clients because they they knew that I, I you know, we were disagreeing, but it was based on facts and not based on any kind of, oh my God, I can't believe you did this to the bank. You know, look, I hadn't made the loans, which helps, right? I was trying to fix mm-hmm. the problem. They knew we had a problem. And it's it's a bell curve distribution. You had some people that were uh that were uh, good folks, uh, and you had some that were, you know, less than stellar performers. Uh, so I sort of know where all the bodies are buried. I'll tell you the one takeaway is, John, and, and, it, and it's held me in pretty good stead throughout, is that you can have the best documents in the world and the worst sponsor, or you can have the best sponsor and the documents that are not so good. And I'll take the best sponsor because they won't care what the documents say. 
because no. character is destiny, right? Like, I think that's like one of the Stoics Absolutely. said that, right? And so if you're Absolutely. dealing with people with good character, there's a way of getting to the right solution. It may not be the perfect solution, and it may involve pain on both the bank side and the borrower side. But increasingly, I found that if you had a good character on the other end and they were willing to work with you, you could get through and you know live to fight another day, so to speak. I literally, there was a mistake in a, and I remember this to this day, that we were foreclosing on a piece of land way out like, I don't know, I forget where it was. It was more than 20 miles from the Beltway, right? And the guy called me up and he said, listen, you have a list down there of the good guys and the bad guys. It was a meets and bounds description of the foreclosure property because they hadn't even platted the lots. And he said, on that list of good guys, you might want to put me on it because you're foreclosing on my property. But I'm telling you right now that the meets and bounds description that your attorneys put in is incorrect. And if you advertise that for three weeks in a row and all that sort of foreclosure bullshit, you're not going to be able to foreclose. And literally, the guy that I was foreclosing on told me that our lawyers, they weren't in-house lawyers. I won't tell you what the firm was, had literally had the wrong meets and bounds description of the property we were foreclosing on. Think about that. To me, that's a sign of good character. And that's somebody that then on the other deals that I had with that guy, I was able to show a little bit more patience and he was able to recover on those deals and not face as big a loss as you, know, you would think. To the me, that's away there, right? The takeaway there, in my view, is the world is a long process. And we have a long, hopefully, a long way to go. And, you know, the markets are cyclical. And someday the markets are going to be good again. Yeah. We're going to do business. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's the old, you see the same people on the way up as you see on the way down, my friend. Exactly. And so, you know, and so from that point of view, I think even though I had to do some very difficult conversations, a lot of those folks, at least they'll still talk to me, right? And they know that I wasn't out for the juggler. I was simply defending, like they were defending their position. Sure. I was defending the bank's position. And we've done some business with some. In fact, I used, when I went to leave rigs, I used a workout borrower as a reference for my next job. So that, yeah. that should tell you, you know. And what's really important from that is you were straight up. They were straight up with you. And everybody was, you know, on the same page. At least you all knew what the issues were and you put it out there. And there was no deception. There was no sneaking or yeah, anything yeah. that you were and, hiding. I think, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think, and I try to tell my kids this, your reputation is way more important than any single commission deal or anything else. Because it just, the road to your point is way too long to put in, in jeopardy anything related to your reputation. And I'm, I'm knocking on wood. I think I have a fairly reasonably good reputation in town after 30 years. <laughs> so you were at Riggs for about three and a half years, you said. And then, five and then five, what? Year, five, five years. Five years a day. Okay. And then I thought I could be a mortgage banker like you, John, but it ended up that I really wasn't that good at that business for a variety of different reasons. I went to Walker and Dunlop. Mallory brought me in. And oh, really? As a quote, producer but I didn't really produce very much. <laughs> so again, it was a tough time, but it didn't matter. The point is I learned an awful lot there. And frankly, I still give Mallory and, and certainly by extension, Willie, 
a lot of gratitude because they didn't come after me on the draw. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> uh, they could have easily come after me on the draw and it would have cost me some money to pay it back. He said, look, you were working hard. It just, you, you had some bad luck in terms of getting deals done. And then a, a fellow that I had worked for who uh, is a good influence in my career, at least in Washington, Steve Hennessier, you know, I called him up and I said, Steve, I am sucking over here at Walker and Dunlop. I've got a new kid. My daughter had been born. And, you know, I need to find a banking job. You got anything over there at Chevy Chase Bank? And he goes, oh, my God, we just offered the job to somebody else. I'd love to have you on the team. Well, again, serendipity. The guy turned the job down. And then I went in and interviewed and I got hired as a VP lender working for Steve on the real estate side with now the experience of having understood better, not great, but better, how permanent lenders view you know, the takeouts by having banged my head at, for 18 months over at Walker and Dunlop, you know, trying to place loans like you do with perm lenders. So that sort of gave me a better feel. And if you're an interim lender, like generally commercial banks are, although, it, you know, changes from time to time, then you better as sure as hell know how that loan exits, right? And mm-hmm. so that makes you, I think, a slightly better interim lender on the construction and repositioning and rehab side of the business. Uh, So I was lucky enough that, uh, you know, the guy turned down the job. Literally, they had offered it to him. I called Steve. He said, oh, my God, we just offered it to somebody else. I'd love to have you over here. And then like three days later, he goes, you better come in because the guy turned it down. And I think you might be a good fit over here in the saw world, which you know very well. So I don't think we crossed over. I left in 92 from the Saul company. Right, right. Was it like yeah, and I didn't get there until the like 96-ish. I don't remember the exact, and I, and I had a, a great run there. Again, look, serendipity. And you probably know the name, the fellow that ran the real estate lending or sort of ran the group, his name will come to me in a minute, decided he wanted to go play developer somewhere. And then Hennessier taps me to run the real estate group at, at Chevy, right? At a time where, uh, you know, Jeff Campbell and those guys, you know, had some lots that needed acquisition and construction financing because things were not as bad as we had anticipated. And there were 20 years worth of lots in Northern Virginia, but there were actually a need for more lots. (laughs) So, you know, we did a lot of residential business uh, through uh, Jeff's group, who, you know, great guy. Mm -hmm. So did you, uh, you then, uh, you were there for what, about three or four years there? No, no, no. A longer run. It was a longer run. I want to say I was there from like 96-ish to like 2000. It was like what when we moved into the Twin Towers in Bethesda, you know, that Mr. Saul built, uh, maybe a, a year after that. So I don't know okay. what year that was. And we had a great run and I had a really, really good team of people and we were doing transactions and and, you know, and I call him the old man when the old man sold the credit card division because everybody thought he was going to sell the bank, but it just wasn't a business that he could scale. We had some additional capital on our hands and uh, we brought in this fellow, uh, Eric Lawrence, who taught me the REIT business, right? And he had been doing it in another bank. And so he ran the commercial side. I had stewardship for all of it. And then we had another guy who's an old hand. He's no longer with us, Pat Burke, doing the residential stuff. So we had a really, really good team and we were rocking and rolling. And we redeployed a lot of that capital that the old man got from selling the credit card division 
into uh, REIT lines, right? So uh, we participated in a bunch of REIT lines all over the country. And, and that's another good way to understand that, you know, in the early 90s, it was very difficult to find a proxy for value in the downturn. But yes. with the REIT in public and that level of transparency, you end up being able to at least find some baseline level of value because it's the public markets telling you what, what, what things are worth, right? They have to revalue everything every quarter, right? In effect. So that was yes, fun. Well, working at the, uh, for one of the Saul companies is a very interesting experience. And I think it probably is the reason for, for my love of Washington so much because there's so right. much history with that company and with that family. Yeah, going indeed. Back to uh, the 19th century, where yep. his grandfather started the company, and yeah, 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 no question, no question. Long legacy. The Washington D.C. history in real estate really is the, the Saul family may be one of the three or four families that are the yeah. foundation of all Washington real estate. Yeah, so arguably, it's, it's a little bit like El Salvador, the 14 families. I think it's probably 14 or 15 families that have really done a hell of a job over a couple of generations, right, to build up some really wonderful real estate in, in our built environment, as they say, at the ULI. Exactly. So then you joined HSBC. Tell me about that transition, Tony. Yeah, I'll tell you, we, we, were, we were doing great at Chevy Chase, but there was a couple of instances where I felt a little bit like that scene in, um, in, in Jaws, right? I think I need a bigger boat, <laughs> you know? And so we were starting to chase some pretty big deals and I forget, I mean, I got to be in my bonnet about some deal that Eric and I wanted to do and we couldn't get it approved. And some guy called me, it was like a headhunter. And I had said no a couple months before. And then I said, you know what? Yeah, I want to talk to them. I want to talk to those guys. It's a bigger, it's like, you know, it's like one of the biggest banks in the world. What the hell? How can I get a bigger boat than that? <laughs> so, you know, initially they offered me the job, but I thought that their expectations for first year production were out of whack and I didn't think it was appropriate. So I literally turned and said no the first time around. And then about six months later, I think they interviewed a bunch of other people and the guy called me. He's still a friend of mine, Ian Dow, uh, the, the search guy. He's moved on from search. And I said, yeah, I'll talk to him again if they've adjusted their expectations for what a de novo lender should do, notwithstanding the size of the bank in this market. And so, you know, I, I took the plunge and I went over to work for the Brits. I have no shame. I forgave them for trying to burn down the White House in 1812. And it, it was, a, it was a, a good opportunity to sort of do a build a team right downtown and uh, hired a bunch of very good folks to join the team. And, you know, we were off to the races. So HSBC in the, in, in the United States, as I recall, is headquartered in Buffalo, New York. Wasn't that? Wasn't well, that it's the were? old Marine Midland Bank, if you will, that right. HSBC, which is really, you know, a conglomeration. Uh, HSBC was really started by a bunch of Scots. Probably they won't admit it, but they were financing the opium trade in Hong Kong. And then, <laughs> and then eventually they, they bought a bank in the UK and the financial authority said they had to move their headquarters from Hong Kong to London, right? Now they have that big building in Canary Wharf. But but they had bought in the U.S. two things. One is the old Marine Midland sort of footprint, if you will, but also the sub mortgage lender that got into subprime, right, that later was really a, a big problem for, for the bank, uh, which was in Chicago. Interesting. So uh, talk about that experience. You were actually you basically were the first 
person in the bank here in the local market, right? So that was a, a you're you're building a, a a base here for them, right? Or had there it, been it, a, a it, yes and no? I mean, that yes, it was a de novo effort on the part of HSBC North America to bring the bank services, if you will, which are heavily focused on the international platform that that bank has, especially then and in when the heck was that, uh, let's call it uh, 2005 for for lack of a a specific date. And and so they were lucky enough to get an old friend of mine to open up the embassy banking group. And that was a natural fit for HSBC and it created a lot of deposits. So Ned Muskie came over from First Union. He opened up that business. Uh, there was some corporate guys hanging around, and then and then the real estate uh, group, and then uh, opened up a number of branches. In fact, the branch in Bethesda is in a deal that um, that we participated in the construction of the Lionsgate condo. I think Doug Vegan sure. was at another bank, and we took a piece of it. And I and I said to the guys, you know, who was the regional president, that would be a really good place to put a branch in Bethesda, right? And it's still there today, right at the corner of uh, like whatever that is, Arlington and old Georgetown, right? Now, of course, we've got at Eagle Bank half a block up, uh, a new branch right right there, you know, with a good car <laughs> and, and just as good or perhaps better signage uh, than, than Lionsgate. Uh-huh. But anyways, the world turns, right? Sure. So you were there for what, four or five years? Yeah. Uh, I, I left in 11 and I got there in like oh five ish So yeah, five, six years. And, you know, the... First couple of years were great fun, and then you know we had that little uh, that little situation in uh, 07 and 08 where places like Lehman were going under, and uh, right. so there was a significant retrenchment, right? And we had to do a little bit of what I call wax on, wax off, like the movie, right? In terms of the the, re- the real estate book, but um, yeah, I mean it was it was a tough time for everybody, and uh, including the 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 book that we had developed. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it was it was under a billion, but not by a lot. Were those times different than 1991 for you, as far as uh, you know, dealing with uh, with the I, difficult John, market? I, I think it. I think it was a very di- look. Every one of these. Uh, what's the old Mark Twain quote about? History uh, doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme, right? And mm-hmm. so, while there were elements of that of that downturn that were similar. To the ones my I was much more stressed out, if you will, in 08, where I thought the entire global financial system was going to collapse, and we you know, and we were going to have to sure. you know, how to trade in wampum or something, you know. So yeah. that was a, a scarier time for me. Maybe in in 91, 92, I was just too naive to worry as much as I did in 08, having you know learned a thing or two, perhaps. But I was way more concerned then. Because again, I was with a global bank, and I thought the global financial system was literally teetering on the edge. I mean, anybody, and I always recommend to the to the younger colleagues at, at the bank to read The Big Short or Too Big to Fail, right? I mean, Andrew Ross Sorkin has nailed it with that big book. It's thick. It's a big book, but it's really worth a read because I think it puts into context how close we came to the edge, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, wait, sure. you know, with, uh, with everything that we all know about that occurred in that time frame in the, uh, the great recession or whatever the hell it is we call it. But it was, it was, a, it was a, a perilous time for the financial markets around the world. So you were able to weather through until 2011 
Was it mostly workouts at that time, or were you actually doing no, loans? No, it, it, it's funny. Look, I got the yellow flashing light to go and do business. I started trying to go and do business. I got some responses from my handlers in New York that were, let's say, suboptimal. And I started to, <laughs> to question whether, you know, if I couldn't do a deal for Southern Management, you know, and an old friend, David Hillman, who's passed away, unfortunately, but Suzanne is doing a hell of a job running the company. Then I started thinking, golly, what am I doing? I mean, uh, and it, look, it, every I tell people when they ask me, well, where should I take this deal? There's capital and, and every bank has its own niche. You know, it's sort of like a doctor. You don't go to a brain surgeon when you have a foot problem or vice versa. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if it's a small deal, maybe a community bank can play with it. If it's a humongous deal that has 14 participants and half a billion dollar, you know, execution, you may not want to go to a small community bank because, you know, they're just not their niche, right? So mm-hmm. I decided that, you know, like Tip O'Neill said about politics, it's local. Real estate is local also, even though the capital sources now in the environment compared to, say, 1990 are really much more global, right? It's still a local business. And so, you know, I the, again, luck, serendipity. The guy who was the HR guy at Eagle, uh, Russ McNish, was there at Eagle, a guy that I used to have breakfast with, you know, uh, periodically, who was, uh, who was a lender at Eagle said to me, listen, the chief whatever lending person is leaving. I was like, oh, leave me alone. I'm with this humongous bank and I don't need anything. And then something happened. I got, again, I got pissed off at the way that, not the way I was being treated, but the way a borrower and a sponsor was being treated. And I sent my resume. I called up Rusty, as they called him. And I said, Rusty, I know that you guys are looking for somebody. I have no idea whether Ron would have any interest in my skill set or whether I would have any interest in going from, you know, uh, a bank that probably spends what Eagle has in assets on lunches around the world, right? (laughs) And so I sent the resume over there and, uh, you know, I met with Ron and, uh, you know, he's an incredible motor on the guy and knew real estate really well as an owner beside being the chairman, president, CEO of the bank. And it was, a, it was an interesting and compelling story to join that growth mode that was there in uh, 11. Had you and, met Ron uh, before? Had you ever met him prior I'm, to I'm that? Glad, I'm glad you asked that question because I go into his office and he's got all these tchotchkes and all this sports memorabilia and all this cool stuff in there. And I said to him, Ron, you know, you and I have met before. And he goes, mm, no, we haven't. I said, mm, yes, we have. My next door neighbor's son's Briss, Jacob's Briss. <laughs> and, and he goes, oh, I don't remember. And I had talked to him. But, you know, we were just sitting there, you know, uh, during the party or whatever you call it. And he goes, oh, my God, I can't believe that. And so we hit it off pretty well. We, I met with a couple of other folks at the bank. I used some of the directors because they had been clients of mine mm-hmm. at Chevy Chase. And I figured, what the hell? Columbus took a chance. Let's go for it. And so Ron hired you. He did. And Susan as well. I mean, she had a hand in it. She, she'll admit sure. it. Well, that's great. So yeah. talk about, you know, you did talk a little bit earlier about Eagle Banks, you know, and your evolution, your role. Yeah. But talk about the uh, the footprint that, that Eagle has had in the market at the time and the footprint it's kind of evolved to now. You know, it's been a while since I've been day-to-day in the lending game or a brokerage yeah. game, but I get the sense and I've seen the, the transaction sizes of deals that you guys have been involved in, that you've grown your footprint 
significantly, maybe not geographically as you'd suggested, but certainly in scale and client base. Uh, so you're, you know, uh, looked upon by some of the leading developers in the market as one as a viable option on uh, most construction fin- financings. Is that uh, fair to say at this point? Yes, thankfully. Yeah. I mean, I, again, I, I wish I could take credit for all of it, but I've got an incredible team on the real estate side and on the CNI side. And, you know, the aforementioned, you know, founder and chairman who had a motor that just never stopped until obviously his health issues uh, got in the way in terms of, uh, you know, uh, uh, being a, a two-time kidney recipient. And l- let me just give Ron a shout out and joy. They, in effect, created the uh, uh, Joy and Ron Paul Kidney Center at GW. And, uh, you know, that's an amazing contribution to our community. But in any case, he was a real estate guy through and through. Yes, he was a banker and all of that. But, uh, you know, we were able to take a view that was perhaps a couple of, still prudent, but a couple of degrees different than perhaps others in terms of the risk assessment on a number of pretty large transactions. And so while we didn't grow the footprint geographically, the size of the transactions that my team was able to wrap its head around with a lot of help from folks that are on the board, including Ron, that really understand real estate. I mean, I really couldn't BS Ron about real estate, right? I mean, you know, he was like, what What are you talking about? You know, he's an owner, right? And so we were able to, you know, continue to grow with a lot of our good relationship clients that had been developed, frankly, by the bank when all the other banks got into more trouble than Eagle did in 08 and 09. And Eagle was able to step in in that time frame, develop some very good relationships. And frankly, I was just the beneficiary you know, of riding the wave that was already cresting, right? And so we were able to, in those go, go, go days, as I call them, really uh, do a lot of great transactions, mostly on an interim basis, construction, uh, repositioning. As a good colleague, Ken Gray says, uh, don't confuse a good market for intelligence, Marquez. So from, you know, from 11, arguably through, you know, even uh, the end of 19 before the pandemic, Washington has been a pretty, pretty safe place to deploy real estate capital, either debt or equity. I mean, you'd have to almost work hard to really screw up a deal, which can happen, right? But it's been a, a hell of a time to be in the lending and investment business in Washington real estate. Talk a little bit more about Ron's philosophy and why he, you know, I mean, I met him in the early or mid nineties when I was at Lake Mason, this is before the bank was even founded. Yeah. And he was a developer. He had a little office in the North end of the Woodmont triangle that I went to meet with him on. And uh, I'll never forget. It was one of those little low rise buildings there on uh, Auburn or one of those little streets up there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I sat sat down in his office, and he had a lot of interesting things, as you suggested, in his as far as uh, accoutrement. And we were looking at refinancing a building on Twenty Second Street that the State Department was the. Oh, I know the building. It's in his portfolio. Yeah, yeah. This was back, you know, when he was only a developer before. But I got the sense that he had more of a mission in his mind than just being a, you know, an entrepreneur. Yeah, was a community mindedness to him that he big he time, felt. big time, big time, and that's why I referenced uh, the uh, the kidney center at GW. Obviously, my alma mater, but on top of that, he has two dogs in that fight, and that he's had two kidney transplants, and so he understands that process. But 
but it's yeah, it goes beyond real estate. It goes beyond banking. It goes to a to an ethic that talks about what a community bank really should be. And I think you know when when I think about it, notwithstanding the fact that he's retired, some of that still remains uh, in the way we try to do business and and try to live up to uh, internally. Some of our employees developed this thing called First, which is sort of the pillars of the bank. And we again, we don't always hit every pillar, but we we certainly do. And the, and it's one of those acronym things where the F stands for flexible, the I for involved, the R for responsive, the S for strong, and the T for trusted. And if you think about you know the foundation of the bank, whether Ron is there or not, and whether he sort of developed that because that was sort of an internal group that came up with that acronym. I think that continues today, irrespective of our $11.5 billion asset size, the pillars of what we try to live up to from senior management all the way down to our 500th employee, maybe it's 498 or whatever FTEs. But, and, and that's sort of been the, the, the legacy of his philosophy of being really involved in the community uh, across the whole bank. The Eagle Bank Foundation. I'm very proud of the work that uh, you know is done there by uh, some of our colleagues and directors relative to uh, to uh, providing uh, money for breast cancer research. We also have uh, another affiliation with with GW where we have a mammogram that goes into underserved communities and does testing for women in areas where maybe they they can't get to. Uh, a place where they can be tested for breast cancer. And those are the kinds of things that I think are the legacy that Susan is doing a great job of continuing, you know, in terms of the way the bank operates and the ethic of the place, if you will, right? So that makes it fun beyond sort of the transactions that we win and all of that kind of stuff, you know? So what's the future of Eagle Bank? I mean, how do you see yourself growing? If you're not going to grow geographically, how do you see yourself growing? Yeah, you know, the the old saw is that if we have only about 3% of the banks, uh, of the area's deposits, right? And we're still, you know, at at 11 billion, you know, if we could get to 5%, what the hell, that could be a, a significant amount of growth still. Look, you know, you never know, right? I mean, uh, what what's around the corner? But uh, the trick for us now is that we've crossed, and in banking nerd terms, right? Uh, once you get over ten billion, you get into a different regulatory environment, and you know, mm-hmm. uh, we're in a heavily regulated business, appropriately so, right? I mean, because at the end of the day, talk about that 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 last letter, right? Trust. Uh, banking is really a trust business, right? All of our depositors put the money in. We lend it out and we got to get it back. You know, when I talk in some of these grad classes, they say, well, what's the most important thing about lending is that getting paid back is kind of important because there's no spread that I can charge if I have to charge off the damn loan. I mean, I'm never going to make that up, right? So it's a appropriately heavily regulated business because it, it's built on trust. And we talk with our clients about their leverage. And yet, if you think about a bank, What's the leverage of a bank? You know, if you keep uh, like we do 10, 11, 12% tier one capital, uh, that's a lot. Well, think about that from a leverage point of view. Uh, we better be regulated. We better make sure that we're prudent with all of the decisions that we make with respect to our loan book. But uh, I would say that first thing uh, is really the, the philosophy that he imbued into the place. And it's his baby, right? I mean, uh, even though he's not there anymore. 
the ability of Susan and the rest of senior management and the 500 employees to continue that legacy of first and community focus is really where, where we get our, our kicks. So, Tony, you've been in the real estate game now almost 30 years or so, I would 30, think, or maybe 30. 30 years now. Yeah. What changes have you seen in the industry in that 30 years? What have, what have been, the as far as banking goes, I mean, what, what changes have you seen in the way people do business in the banking sector? There's that old French saying, the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? But I think around the, the edges, it's still a local business, but clearly capital flows are global, right? So, you know, you've got to evolve or die. And, and, you know, and so we need to begin to understand that while we may have a relationship with a local uh, sponsor, their capital is global, right? It could be, you know, one of these Middle Eastern groups is putting in the equity, the 90% to their 10%, blah, 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 and all of that. So I think that's clearly one of the changes that, that we've all had to sort of get used to, right? It, it, capital is capital, but the, to the extent that it's global now and those capital flows are global, you've got to wrap your head around that. And thankfully, I took enough international econ when I thought I was going to go into the freaking foreign service that I have some ability to, at least around the edges, understand some of that, some of, some of how that affects the transaction you know, at the local level, right? So I would say that's one element of it. But Look, I still see it as a people business, right? I go back to the comment we made about, you know, if you've got a really good sponsor and you've got bad dogs, that's okay. But if you've got a really good dogs and you have a bad sponsor, you're going to have a problem anyway. And so, you know, one of the ways that we've been able to succeed at, at, at Eagle is that we're pretty much asset type agnostic. And uh, in many instances, I'm really betting on the jockey and not the horse, right? And so... The, that ability to pick the right jockey. You know, uh, Dave Sislin, who's an old friend, and I think you know him, and he teaches at Mason now, uh, always talks about the fact that there's never bad real estate. It's just a bad capital stack applied to a real estate property, right? And there's a lot of truth in that, right? Certainly. So it, real estate lending is very competitive. How do you see Eagle kind of carving out your niche? You said you have about 3% of the Deposits on the, in the marketplace. On the deposit side. Yeah. Today on the, we on the sit, yeah, on the lending side, we sit with about five billion dollars in real estate outstandings. And we sit with about two and a half billion dollars in C and I lending, commercial and industrial. A lot of it government government contracting exposure, but a lot of different businesses in there. And frankly, over the last year, I've had to sort of pivot and try to marinate myself a little bit more into the C and I side of our business. But whether it's CNI or CRE, I think the way that I and the bank tries to think about it is that that speed and certainty of execution are critical to a business owner or a real estate developer. And again, knocking wood, we have been able to stay pretty nimble and we really trade on our ability to respond quickly to an opportunity, be flexible in terms of how we structure the transaction without, you know, crossing any you know, not going a bridge too far relative to the structure and protect the bank, but also provide what I would call more of a boutique solution to our borrowers than an off the shelf. Now, that's hard as you get bigger and you have more and more notes and all of that, right? So that's the balancing act of how much of that boutique can we afford to do hands-on, you know, bespoke type 
structures and then still maintain the, the need to replace the loans that run off, we have a relatively short duration term, term duration in our book. So we're always needing to replace the runoff uh, because we're more of an interim lender than we are a long-term lender. Sure. And so um, that's the trick, uh, speed and certainty of execution. And then you begin to get a reputation that when you put out a term sheet, it generally comes back the way that you signed the term sheet as the borrower and you're able to close efficiently and quickly on the terms that were presented. And then people go, whoa. You know, it's like the little engine that could remember reading your kids that that sure. uh, that book. Uh, we just keep chugging along, and everyone's like, "How are those guys doing that?" And we just, you know, it's blocking and tackling and providing speed and certainty of execution. I think on both the CNI and the CRE side, and that's really nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with how great the team is in terms of being able to live up to both the the first acronym, but also understanding that speed and certainty of execution and urgency are uh, are what win the deal right because uh, on both sides we're in one of the most competitive you know lending markets in the country right and uh, especially on the real estate side you know all these other banks from out of town want to come in here you know sure. and do stuff and I know some of them I'm always yelling at my guy at Santander you know uh, you know what I'm talking about it's like oh my god I can't believe you beat me on that deal <laughs> you know but uh, well, yeah Washington historically has been a very stable marketplace with the two two markets that we talked about as an exception in the early 90s and the and the uh, GFC. Right. But we're now going through something that none of us in our lifetimes have gone through before and it's a unique time and it's we're all we're approaching a year now that we've all been <laughs> at home doing work and that in the marketplace, and it's it's hard enough to inspect deals now if you're a lender to get out there. I mean, you almost have to do virtual inspections, but I assume physically you have to on construction deals go out and put your mask on and and look at real estate just yeah. like you're supposed to. I yeah, assume look, that's I, what you do. I am, I am, and I think Susan would echo these comments. We're so proud of all of our employees and and the ability to pivot and. Forget it was like a Friday in March. I can't remember whether it was March 13th or 15th or 17th of last year when we decided that we needed to run the bank, you know, virtually, if you will. Now, look, our folks on the retail branches are really at the front lines, right? And mm-hmm. so, you know, they've had to, to make more adjustments than, than, than anybody would imagine. And they've been able to navigate that very successfully. And we thank them for that. And then, you know, as soon as we figured out how to run the bank sort of virtually, then all of a sudden we get hit with uh, with the PPP program, which really stressed all of the financial institutions in terms of, you know, trying to help out all of our clients with this government grant program, in effect, that's run through the banks. Well, you know, uh, that was a, a tricky time and an, an amazing effort on the part of the bank, all the banks, frankly. I, but but I would, again, I'm biased and focused on the 1,442 loans that we did in about a, about a 90-day period when mm. that group had done maybe 65 transactions the year before, which tells you that the entire bank had to lean in on that effort wow. and get organized and figure out how the hell to ramp up. And, you know, these 
these loans have like a 1% interest on it or whatever, right? But they're critically important to a lot of our small businesses to be able to weather sort of that initial part of the of the storm uh, of the virus. But uh, yeah, look, this is, uh, I, I read an article in one of the papers and I'm sort of nerd out. I still read the physical paper, right? The guy's view was that that what we're going through right now, and it's always very difficult while you're in the middle of the storm to figure out the implications, right? But he his point was, and I don't think it was hyperbole, that this, what we're going through now and still regrettably going through until we get, uh, you know, 75, 80% of our population inoculated with the vaccine is as transformative as, say, the Great Depression or World War II. And, and I actually don't think that's hyperbole. I, I think that every sector and every individual in our country is going to be, again, over time, we'll begin to realize the implications. Think about universities, just that alone. Boy, I'd hate to be the president of a small liberal arts college in the middle of uh, the Midwest that has 2,000 students. I, I, I don't know how someone can operate in that space virtually and all that. Now, technology, right? The Internet of Everything, I think, will help. If you think about uh, Arizona State University, has done a hell of a job with their sort of ability to pivot, uh, and they've been doing it for years. So it was only a, an acceleration of something they've been working on. So you know, education, health, real estate, every name any sector, and it'll be over time transformed by what we've just we're still living through. So. Let's get let's stay in the real estate sector a little bit and sure. talk about what you think. And I get this, I try to get this from everybody. <laughs> uh, the transition is in the various product types. So we look at the product types right now of hospitality and retail being probably the most dramatically hit by the by the pandemic, at yeah. least immediately. Yeah. My sense is the hospitality market will come back. It it's a function of time and you know. Uh, the herd immunity feeling that we have perhaps this fall or early in 2022, you'll start to see people doing a little bit more business travel, more leisure travel, that kind of thing, which is going to help that sector. But is you, do, you, do you agree with that? Absolutely. Look, I, I think every sector will come back. The question is how, right? And what will the, the new, new, the new normal, the new sort of paradigm be? Uh, with respect to how those assets will perform in light of the changed world, right? So, exactly. you know, I don't think retail is dead. The numbers like 14% of retail transactions are done on the internet, which means what? 86% are still done in person. So, yeah, there's going to be less. There's, it's going to be different. Uh, you know, you can't get a many petty like, you know, my daughter and my wife might get over the, uh, the internet. Just not going to work. You still got to go out and get it done. And so it's just going to be very, very different. And we're all going to have to stay nimble, flexible, and understand that uh, we're going to have to evolve the way we think about assets and the way we think about demand for those assets. Because at the end of the day, you know, this is still a supply and demand game, right? It, that's it. Well, Washington, D.C. is an office market. I mean, this is... I mean, we don't have much industrial here. Yeah. Uh, we certainly have retail and hospitality, but this is, you know, if you look at, and of course, apartments, but if you look at the overall dollars invested in the lending space, the office market dominates uh, as far oh. as dollars invested. Right. 
right? And so what do you think about the long-term viability of the office market in Washington? It's the highest vacancy rate perhaps ever right yeah. now in downtown Washington. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and it's sub-market by sub-market, asset by asset is the only way that I can think about it because making some sort of a broad pronouncement about any asset type or anything like that is, I, I think that's sort of uh, a, a fool's errand, if you will. So downtown mm-hmm. is in a slog for any tenant, and there are a number of buildings that are functionally obsolete and really should not be office. They're sort of, they're, they're walking dead office buildings that just happen to be there, and that'll create opportunities for people uh, at the right strike price, right? Everything clears mm-hmm. the market eventually. It's just a question of how much pain and bears the pain, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And so from that point of view, and yet you say, well, suburban office. Okay, well, some of those now, if I don't feel like I need to go in five days a week or need as much space, and I'd rather be closer to my home office, and all of a sudden, a little suburban office building that maybe surface parked and is, you know, not too functionally obsolete, and you can put a little, you know, a little lipstick on that thing, and and then people will will want and crave that kind of a, I think that sort of a hub and spoke type thing where not everyone is going to be, you know, in the main headquarters building, but you might need a little bit more flexible space. By the way, even the 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 sort of WeWork type space or make office in our local area or Pergius or whatever, you know, all these industrious, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. industrious, any of those, even those are going to be you know, there'll be a shakeout like in every market, but even some of those will have a role in terms of uh, how office is used uh, down the road. What that role will be, what it will be priced at, how much supply and demand, you know, TBD. But we all sort of need to hang around the basket and figure it out as we go through it. Sure. So you've been dealing with this PPP program now (laughs) since since that. And that the numbers you just cited were just amazing to me. How has that affected your personnel and you know servicing group? I mean, to go from sixty some loans to fourteen hundred loans in one year is like yeah. What? I mean, how look, do you uh, do that? Blair Horn, who runs the SBA and B two B group for us, has not slept as much as he should. Uh, we literally had some employees, John, because on the e trans system, uh, it just wasn't wired to take applications without crashing. They were like sleeping on the floor in their offices and inputting stuff at one and two in the morning. And so what I call that, I call that what I call that discretionary effort. That's the effort that people make when you're not looking. They just do it because they have a sense of mission and purpose to help our clients. And that's the thing. I got goosebumps. Just uh, people can't see goosebumps on a podcast, but I got them just thinking about some of the folks that that have really uh, leaned in in a crazy way. And now we're in the second or third round of this. And then maybe appropriately so, the president said, look, we're going to give like, you know, only um, applications for people that have less than 50 FTEs or whatever. I don't know the number. So that put a, a little bit of a wrinkle. It's 20, actually. 20, 20, 20 employees. Okay. There you go. That's why you don't go for the facts from me, just the big picture, brother. But 20, and my people are all over that in terms of trying to adjust, and it's going to be for two to three weeks, if I heard him say it correctly. So, you know, we need to pivot again. So, look, we're dealing with the government, uh, and there's a lot of uncertainty about exactly how the program works, and we're having all, as an industry, to adjust 
to quote, uh, put in quotes around it, the guidance that we're getting from the SBA. They're trying to figure it out also. But again, as a community bank, we have no choice but to help our clients have access to some of these funds. And so we're at it again. <laughs> Here we go again. I guess the question I ask is, when those funds run out, when they stop yeah. doing it, and you yeah. have clients that are kind of on the fence, yeah. how hard is it going to be to say, you know, we need to do something here. We need to work out of something. And how are we oh, going to work this through? It's not going to be already, easy, is it? No, no, it isn't. Because again, what, what everyone needs to remember is that for us, it's a loan. For the owner of the real estate or the business, it's their livelihood. Right. So that's tough. And regrettably, I was trying to avoid having to do some of these hard conversations and get away from the industry and retire before we had the next downturn. And this damn pandemic has really put us in a position where we know a certain percentage of our clients may not make it. Literally, it's a solvency question. It's not a, a, anything mm-hmm. other than that. And it's through no fault of their own. No. It's because of the pandemic just crushing anything that requires foot traffic, Right. Think about it that way, right? That's the way I think about yeah, it. Sure. It needs foot traffic. It's a problemo. <laughs> and so uh, these are going to be some very, very difficult conversations in the country. And, and we're just at the beginning of the end, right? As opposed to the, you know, whatever. Uh, so, yeah, that's going to be very, very difficult for us. And for, frankly, for our lenders who have developed relationships with these people, helped them into their businesses, and now have to pivot and delivered some very difficult messages. What we're trying to do is, in some way is by creating a what we call a COVID task force or a special assets group is separate a little bit the person that developed the relationship and knows the ins and outs of the deal from having to be the one that has to make some of those very difficult calls because mm-hmm. they're so good at being invested in the future of our clients that it's sometimes it's very difficult for them to, to separate out what we need to do as a bank, as a fiduciary, if you will, and what, what, what is really required. And, and unfortunately, some of those businesses simply will, will go out of business. And it's tough because it's their livelihood, man. Well, since you're a networking type of guy, <laughs> I would think that you and maybe a team of people internally, including this group you're talking about, would be able to take some people that are you know, have done their best they can and find the opportunities for them in training or something to pivot from where the, where they are now to what where the future lies in uh, either in the sector they're in or in another sector to help them based on yeah. the relationships. Well, I know you're not a social institution, but no. you know, it seems to me that you know it, it comes down to that when you're dealing with situations like this sometimes. Well, I, I think that's right. But I think the first order of priority is how do we navigate the shoals that we're in right now to ensure that we provide all of our clients with the best possibility of maintaining the solvency of their business or their real estate. And what the, you know, we were talking before about the takeaways from my uh, glorious days at the once venerable rigs. And the answer is that, that a bank, any bank will trade uh, structure and carry for time. And in many instances, what some of these businesses need, especially if they're real estate secured, we were talking about the fact that a lot of hospitality assets will eventually come back, or at least we think they will, with some level of higher demand for, for rooms, if you will. And so how do you structure something that allows the bank 
from a prudent and regulatorily approvable and sound way to continue to carry the loan as performing asset on its balance sheet and yet give time, right, to the borrower or the business to rebound, if you will, in terms of their ability to generate top-line revenue. There are some very real green shoots. And what will happen is those that had more cash, more staying power, and more imagination will be able to pivot and make it through what is obviously a very difficult time for all of us, but specifically for business owners and hotel owners or retail owners. And, you know, no different than in the 90s, the ones that have more imagination, more staying power, and more sort of uh, determination will come out the other end of this. And what, I, what I've told our crew is that we want to come out of this better, not bitter, because no one created this. We, we need to just come out of it better than we were when we went into it and not bitter for having had to make all of the adjustments that all the families, employees, and the country has had to make. And so that's the trick. How do we come out of this better, but not bitter? That's a great, that's a great adage. So um, looking back over your career, what, what business relationships have had the most impact on you and why, Tony? At the end of the day, like so many businesses, a relationship business, right? Right. Because I remember the one thing that All Britain did say that made some sense to me was with his little Texas draw, he'd say, the idea is to get them to call you. So I always talk with the younger lenders and I say, look, it doesn't matter who you know, it's who knows you. And so you've got to get out there and you've got, and now obviously in the current environment, it's hard as hell, right? I mean, it's killing me that I don't get to go to some of these events that we have and we talk and all of a sudden the guy says, ah, sure. oh, did you hear about that deal? And I don't know, I'm interested in that deal. And, you know, starts, you know, the, the molecules start bouncing off each other at these events, whether it's a ULI event or DCBIA event or whatever event it is, NAOP. And all of a sudden you get that interaction that's, you know, uh, person to person has been devoid of the market for the better part of a year. And it's killing me. I mean, and it's killing my guys that, you know, or gals that try to get out there and meet with people. So, you know, the relationships are, that, that are developed are almost like the brand equity that you have in the market, in any market. And so mm-hmm. I remind them that uh, it's not who you know. I remember in the days when we were working at, at Chevy Chase, people say, oh, so-and-so knows Mr. Saul. I say, yeah, but does Mr. Saul know him or her? <laughs> because frankly, just because they know him, that doesn't mean shit, right? Does he know them? And so, you know, that's the same thing on the lending side. The greatest gratification, in fact, I have a call like that. Somebody called me up and said, Tony, we haven't talked in three years. I'm over at so-and-so company and I have a deal for you. That's that to me, that's the, the coin of the realm. When they call me to find out if I'm interested in a deal as opposed to me having to cold call like a tenant rep, like my son is down here in Miami, right? And so that's the benefit of, uh, uh, you know, staying power in the market and being around. It's all about the relationship. Doug mentioned it. Tom Bizzuto mentioned it. Everyone just about that you've had a conversation with talked about the fact that it's about the team and not the individual. And it's about the relationships that you foster, build, and maintain. And you don't maintain them only when there's a transaction. You need to be reaching out to people when there's not a specific transaction. And when we talk about the mentoring that you do at ULI, it's critical that the younger folks understand that 
long road that we discussed before, the fact that you don't reach out to somebody only when you have a deal or need something from them. You need to drop them a note and say, hey, I saw that you did that deal. Congratulations. Whatever the hell it is, it doesn't have to be like uh, hokey. It can be normal part of your thinking that you maintain and foster those relationships because those are the ones that are going to then, like this kid that's calling me, I don't remember him. It said, you know, I'm I'm now no longer an XYZ company. I'm over here and I got a deal for you. That to me is, that's Nirvana because that's them reaching out to me. All Britain's, the idea is to get them to call you, <laughs> you know, with his Arkansas draw or whatever the hell. We're so fortunate to be in the Washington, D.C. market. Uh, for uh, sure. I interviewed Ray Ritchie. He made that point very clear because Boston Properties does business in four major markets, New York, yep. here, San, uh, San Francisco, yeah, and Los San Angeles. And he said- Well, don't forget Boston. Shit, they got stuff. And Boston, too. And he said, you know, I know these other markets pretty well because I cover them now as well as what I cover Washington. He said, but doing business in New York and San Francisco and Los Angeles is like handling a, a chainsaws, you know, with different clients. You know, it's, it's just awful. Whereas Washington- Everyone's collegial. You know, you lose a deal, somebody will write you. I write a note to somebody when I lose a deal and congratulate them. Yeah. So, and he said, people do the same thing to me. And I mean, Ray is a little unique. I mean, he's, he's a pretty special person. Without a doubt. And he's a real icon. We're all trying to catch up to Ray. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, he cares about people uh, as much as anybody I've dealt with, but I will say that 90% of the people I've, interviewed for this podcast are the pretty much the same way uh, that they really care about who they, who they deal with and how they've dealt with in this marketplace. So I, I think that's right. Point. I think, I think there's, ha- there has to be a sense on the counterparty that there's care, authenticity. And even if we disagree, you know, that's okay because uh, at the end of the day, you know, there, there's a longer game. The meta game is stay in it because it's a long game and you never know what will happen. Right. Sure. So over the years, you were probably offered opportunities to leave banking and either came a come a sponsor or developer, or even an intermediary. And I guess you were an intermediary for a short period of time. Yeah, which clearly I didn't know. <laughs> so, so, but did you ever think about going across and becoming a borrower, or was you ever was there ever an opportunity to you do know, that? A, a couple. Of, I mean, look, thank you for asking the question. I, I think a couple of times I would have been tempted. But frankly, there, there's an element of sort of understanding your role. And at the end of the day, I think I'm best built, at least, you know, through my current position to be a lender rather than pretend that I know the development business or pretend that I know the brokerage business or pretend something else. You know, the, 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 the comfortable place for me is where I'm at today. And I don't mean that in a complacent sense, because I think uh, the question you'll ask is about, you know, what should the younger um, uh, folks that are listening to this podcast think about? And it is a lifetime of learning and staying curious because things will change and you've got to just sort of continue to, to sort of say, wow, I didn't know that. Right. And avoid the hubris. But but frankly, uh, I'm sort of uh, I'm relishing the role of of leading, uh, I think it's 140 people between CNI and CRE that drive a significant percentage of the bank's uh, revenue uh, at an institution that, again, to date, 
has valued my input and my ability to impact the uh, the growth of the bank. And so, yeah, while while that might be you know tempting for some people, for me, it's sort of this is the role that I have, and I'm and I'm uh, enjoying it. And so, yeah, I mean, look, at the end of the day, equity's pencil has to be a hell of a lot more sharp than mine. I've got the equity cushion between my dead dollars. And yes, so, you do. know, that's a that's a very different business. Uh, and I, yes, I respect is. the fact that they get the returns they get because you've got to have a way sharper pencil to be the equity than perhaps I even have. <laughs> so what characteristics in your make a great commercial real estate lender in your view, Tony? You've already talked about trust and relationships, which I think is probably yeah. right up there in the top two or three, yeah. I would think. But yeah. I, look, I, I I think that that it's it, I go back to this thing about it's a people business and and understanding the capabilities of the person and the team that's putting the transaction together and and sort of not diluting yourself into thinking that you know more than the developer, more than the architect, more than the lawyer. So really, it, it the game that that I I think we have as intermediaries in the sense that we're the lender, because think about the lender on one of my teams. They have to convince the bank that it's a good deal and they have to convince the borrower that it's a good deal. So it's almost like a double presentation, yeah. right? Exactly. You've got to understand the, 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 the intricacies and the risk appetite of the financial institution that's going to live with the loan on its balance sheet, uh, except for our FHA business where we create the Gini. Everything else resides on our balance sheet. So mm-hmm. my crew has to find it, assess it, close it, and mind it through payback. And that's a very different than some of the bigger banks. I mean, our guys and gals are A to Z lenders. They have to do the full spectrum of that. And so you really have to make sure that you understand the exit like we talked before, because mm-hmm. I, you know the most important thing is getting paid back, right? And so that's that's I think the the some of the characteristics. I don't have like a I wish I had like a like a snappy answer for you of what makes a great commercial real estate lender because I think styles can be different, but the fundamentals mm-hmm. are there, and that is not deluding yourself into thinking the deal is better than it really is. In other words, one of the things I say to the lenders, especially the young ones, you've got to be willing to lose the deal at the point that you said, look, this is this is a transaction. This is how we think it trades on our balance sheet at this price and this proceeds with this structure. If it doesn't work for you, I'm okay with that. We're prepared to be wrong at this proceed level, at this leverage level, at this price, because that's sort of where we're at. And the, the other uh, nirvana point for me is besides having somebody that I haven't talked to calling me two years later about a deal is having somebody say, no, I'm going to take XYZ's bank's deal. And then they come back kind of with their hat in hand and they go, oh, those guys didn't really uh, perform under that term sheet. <laughs> and I go, and they, and they say, do you mind? Look, I said, the same term sheet that I gave you before stands. Do you want to do the transaction with us? And, you know, mm-hmm. if I had a dime for every time that's happened oh. and to me, you know, that's just that that then builds a trust level with that exactly. particular borrower, right? That look, I'm telling you what I can do. If it doesn't work, that's okay. You know, we'll talk about another one. It's not a big deal. You gotta be willing to lose it at the price of proceed and leverage and structure that you put out on the street. Well, it's a surface business. And I think you know, so. You, totally. Totally. You just have to be 
thinking customer service from the get-go. And, and it, sometimes your offer just isn't going to work. And then you come back and say, okay, this is where I am. And a month later, you get a phone call. You know, yeah. these other guys didn't make it work for me. And I'm ready to step down with you. And I said, yeah. I, I love that. Yeah. Love and, that. And, but, and frankly, I'm embarrassed to tell you with some banks, not all of them, there are very, very good lenders out there. It's almost like that old joke about how fast you have to run in the woods if a bear is chasing you. You just yeah. need to run faster than the other guy, right? And so if that guy's, <laughs> I love running up against somebody that's really slow <laughs> because we know we can beat them and the bear is going to get them and not me. And we're going to win the business and get the mandate and create the relationship that hopefully will be beneficial for both parties. So what are some of the biggest wins, losses, and surprising <laughs> events of your career, Tony? Let's start with wins, I guess. We'll start with that. What do you, what's yeah, the I mean, I, I, always, I always tell the story about a deal that I did for a Korean fellow and a downtown asset that showed this really weird personal financial statement and lived on Kent Island and didn't show much on his tax return. It was a, it was a, a deal that he was buying down, let's call it around the D.C. farmer's market. And I was able to get that deal approved at, at Riggs, which was sort of had that reputation for being stodgy and, you know, only wanting to deal with blue bloods and all that. And I thought that was, God, that's a fun transaction for me to remember. And it wasn't a huge deal, by the way. It was just mm -hmm. the ability to break through preconceived notions about the real estate, the location, the sponsor, Everything involved in the deal was like, why are you even wasting your time on that, Marquez? And I was able to get that done. And that's one of the ones that I, I remember as being, oh, my God, that was so much fun to be able to take the old rigs through <laughs> a process of breaking the myths, right? Because, you know, the trick in some of this stuff is whether you're an owner or a lender is to see sort of the diamond in the rough and understand that there's real value in the story or the asset or the company that's going to be achieved over time, but maybe not readily evident at the time that you're assessing it, right? And so those are the fun times when you do a transaction that not everybody else sort of looked at the same way, right? And you sure. were able to see just a slightly different angle and were able to win the business. And that's sort of what floats my boat. I mean, the other one that's a, that's a huge win, when we were at Chevy Chase and we were able to bring a little bank like B of A into our construction loan after having beaten them on a deal at the corner of, I won't tell you where it is, but it's the corner of 17th and K. <laughs> and so, okay. you know, when Eric and I looked at each other, as well, why don't we ask B of A to be our participant? <laughs> and they came in, right? Little old Chevy Chase Bank had B of A in one of their deals. That that's the kind of fun that I get. Or when we beat an out-of-town bank that's humongous or refinance something out of the HSBC portfolio, you know, that was mm -hmm. in the book and we took it over to, to Eagle Bank. Uh, those are those are the, the wins that, you know, aside from the benefit to the bank that sort of floats my boat. On the, on the negative side, look, any lender that tells you they haven't made some bad loans is actually just bullshitting you because in this business, being as cyclical as it is, uh, and I still talk to the guy, but we did a deal that had a GSA lease in it. And, and it was, uh, you know, he's billed a suit for a GSA agency and progress mm -hmm. payments. And, and the thing just went to hell in 08. You know, when you get a call from your borrower and they say, we're shutting down the job. And you're like, well, what do you mean you're shutting down the job? Yeah. I mean, it was right in the, in the global, uh, what do you call it? GF. Uh, uh, global GF financial crisis. GFC. Yeah, 
yeah. uh, for lack of a, of a better word. And, and so you go, wow. And we, you know, at HSBC, we lost a significant amount of money on that transaction. Ultimately, the thing worked out fine. But, you know, at that bank, we had so much in reserve against it. And we just didn't want to fuss with it anymore. And we just sort of, you know, uh, wrote it off and moved on. Uh, but, you know, you're likely to make some bad loans. The trick is to make sure you don't repeat them and do something stupid again, right? Uh, what's the Obama code? Don't do anything stupid. That's important. How about some things that came out of left field, surprises, anything that kind of really, wow, just blew you away in, you know, in business sometime? Well, look, I, I, I'm always amazed by the, by, uh, the thing that, that, again, also warms my heart is the level of effort that people put into their jobs, even in, in difficult times. And, and that, again, is just very gratifying to me to be able to sit on top of a team that does such an amazing job of really caring for our customers and putting in the, the what I call the discretionary effort that no one sees. It's the stuff you do when no one else is looking, whether that's sure. advice I give to my kids or mm-hmm. that I see at the bank in terms of people doing stuff above and beyond the call of duty. Uh, that to me is, uh, is the stuff that, again, just like winning a deal and bringing B of A in as a participant at Chevy Chase Bank, that level of effort, uh, because no one ever wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to go to the office and do a really bad job, right? It's incumbent upon the leadership to put him in a position to do a really good job by providing clarity and providing a sense of purpose and an understanding of what the mission is. And so that's the fun, right? Because then when all that shit aligns and you start winning, then you just sort of ride that wave and you're just sitting there going, that's God, great. it's fun. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. So that, that's so Tony, part. what are your life priorities among family work and giving back? Well, again, like everybody else that you've talked to on your podcast, I mean, uh, I feel so grateful to be in the U.S. that I, I try to uh, participate in a number of different not-for-profits. My, my current night job, as I call them, uh, is the Venture Philanthropy Partners, and I'm really proud of my affiliation with those folks. I was the uh, board chair for more. I almost became a poster child for term limits at the Latin American Youth Center, but I gave them a two-year heads up that I was going to move on. So I still work with those guys because, you know, at the end of the day, what I always told them is that I see the face of my dad in the face of some of the kids at the youth center. Uh, so mm-hmm. that, that's uh, always fun. Uh, so that, that, you know, obviously uh, you got to take care of family because that's number one, you know, when you're, when you're retired and you're doing this, that, and the other thing, and you're not no longer being on a podcast with John Coe, your family is still going to be there no matter what. Right. So that's number one, the ethic of, and certainly it, it, it came to me before, even when I was up at Chase, I was involved in a number of things out on Long Island, but uh, the ethic of uh, being part of the community and being able to provide some, uh, give some back, right? Uh, because of how lucky we all are to be A, living in the US, B, being in a great market and C, in a great community like the Washington metro area. It's, uh, it's always fun to be able to sort of uh, uh, make a little bit of an effort outside of my own self-interest to uh, make uh, the lives of other people a little bit more uh, sustainable for them, right? And it's enlightened self-interest because those people are going to rent apartments and they're going to go to the retail store and they're going to whatever, use the internet that'll help the data center, whatever it is, it's, it's enlightened self-interest. So what advice would you give your 25-year-old self today, Tony? You know, it's weird because I don't know where 
the line is between just plain luck and making your own luck. You know, like, so, you know, on the one hand, there's that great Tolstoy line about time and patience are the greatest warriors. And then on the other hand, uh, I remember a guy that, again, I was on the board of the National Park Trust, and this guy had gotten paralyzed in a motorcycle accident and then burned in an airplane accident. So, and his whole thing was, it's, it's not what happens to you, it's what you do about it, right, that really defines you. Because stuff is going to happen, whatever it is. I mean, you know, look at poor Tiger. I mean, we're talking today, the day after he gets into a car accident for some reason. And and now where everyone thought his back was the problem, now we're all worried about whether the guy will ever be able to hit a golf ball. And he's got everything in the world going for him. But, you know, anything can happen to anybody at any time and probably Mm -hmm. will. So the Mm -hmm. trick, whether you're 25 or 62 like me, is it doesn't matter what happens to you. It's what you do about it that really defines you. And I try to impart that to both my colleagues at the bank, but also my kids, right? That's great. That's great. So if you could post a statement on a billboard on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what would it say, Tony? Right. Right now it says wear a mask, which is probably wise, right? And so (laughs) the thing we all have to get comfortable with is uh, I would say, you know how sometimes they say expect delays? Uh, I would say expect delays. Stuff will happen like we were just talking about and it may delay uh, where you want to go, but you need to sort of uh, be persistent and, and work through the delay. We've all been there, right? The ways is not going to always give you the best way to get around the, sometimes you just stay on the beltway and you end up getting to the, the exit you want to get off at if you're patient rather than cut off and go on old Georgetown and then go through <laughs> Rockville and you end up and you see the same truck ahead of you when you get back on the bus. So I would say expect delays is one that, that would help all of us, right? Because it's going to happen. Well, Tony, on that note, thank you very much for your time today and for uh, your candid responses. Uh, you're the first real estate lender that I've had on the podcast. Uh, even though I was in the business for over 25 years of my career, I feel honored to have you on on this, and it's been a, a very enlightening conversation, and I appreciate it very much. No, no, it, it, it's you. great fun for me to have to think about some of the questions that you've asked me, and also to hopefully impart a couple of nuggets that others can take and think about and apply it to their own situation, right? Every situation is different. We all have a different facticity to our life. But at the end of the day, if somebody gets an idea or a notion that helps them to win business, even if it's against me on a deal, that's fine. And there's plenty of business out there for all of us. And certainly, I appreciate the fact that you made me the first lender to come on the podcast. There are a lot of very, very good lenders and colleagues out there at other banks that could certainly provide other perspectives for you. Well, thank you, Tony. Appreciate it. Have a great day. Stay well. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Tony. Usually after uh, my interview, I have a postscript with Tom Amos, who is an executive with Hoare Construction, and for the last year has volunteered his time and energy in helping me with this podcast primarily and researching our postscript conversation for insights he gathered, as well as in administrating my marketing efforts. Tom has decided to uh, step away as his uh, business activities have accelerated, and so he is no longer be doing this. So, Tom, assuming you're listening, thank you for all your efforts on behalf of the podcast, and I wish you very well in your career 
in construction and beyond. So thank you. In lieu of Tom's insights, I will share a few takeaway thoughts of my own of today's conversation with, uh, with Tony. Tony began his, his real estate banking career in a crisis period in 1990 and learned how to be creative in solving problems early on for borrowers and for the bank. This is where often where real estate professionals learn the most, similar, obviously, to the last year that we've suffered through the pandemic. Uh, 1990 was a unique time in our industry, as I've talked about in many previous episodes. But uh, it was a deep crisis, primarily in the lending sector and for the banking area. So this conversation, some of the things he went through were very indicative. He did maintain his flexibility and and adaptability in uh, moving to different banks and strategies as the markets changed. So that's one thing that you could say about Tony and, and what makes him a great banker is he is flexible and adaptable and he was able to adapt to situations. But he also kept his integrity throughout his career and is most proud of what he likes to say is what people do when no one else is looking, as he says, which I think is uh, indicative of that philosophy. His advice of it's not what happens to you, it's what you do about it is absolute gold. And he is uh, shows it every day in what he does. As you heard, he is very casual in his demeanor, but very serious when getting down to business. And that w- that's what makes him likable and trustworthy. So I hope you took away some really good pearls from this conversation. A quick uh, reminder that I offer a career counseling service for real estate executives at all levels, particularly in, when in transition or anticipating a change. If you're interested, please jot me an email at john, J-O-H-N, at coenterprises, C-O-E-E-N-T-E-R-P-R-I-S-E-S dot com, if interested. And I hope you do. So thank you again, and we'll talk again in two weeks.